Last week I uh, mentioned a case, a sad case, a tragic case of errant coordinates. Well, actually it was somewhat comical now I think back, back to it. Errant coordinates and a mistaken invasion. Remember the British invasion of Spain back in 2002? If you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up. Um, the British invasion of Spain, 2002, errant coordinates, mistaken invasion. Following up on that, I was just curious, was reading up a little bit more about such kinds of, of things and big mistakes made, uh, however intentioned. And I came across something that wasn't nearly so comical, the uh, Cap Arcona incident. I'm going to read to you this little bit that I, I came across on a history site. On May 3rd, 1945, only one day after Germany's surrender, before Germany's surrender, excuse me, the German transport ships Cap Arcona, Tilbeck, and Deutschland came under attack by Typhoon fighter bombers of the RAF, that's the Royal Air Force. All three ships were sunk in the Baltic Sea by bombs, rockets, and cannon fire. Unbeknown to the pilots, however, was that the ships actually contained concentration camp survivors as well as allied prisoners of war. Many of the SS guards on board the ships were rescued by German trawlers, but the prisoners were left on board the sinking ships while other survivors were shot as they swam ashore. It is estimated that almost 10,000 concentration camp survivors were killed in that attack. It's a horrible, terrible thing not to know who you're resisting. It's a terrible thing not to know who you are resisting. Great harm, of course, can come to others. Great harm, in fact, can come to yourself not knowing who you are resisting. And that is actually inevitable when it comes to resisting Jesus. It's like a self-inflicted friendly fire resisting Jesus. We come to recognize all the more we come to recognize who he is, his identity, and his plans, his intentions for us. Um, it's a terrible thing. May we know who he is a little bit better here because of our time this morning. Matthew 12. Matthew chapter 12. If you have a Bible, I ask you to turn there now with me. We're pressing on in this uh, series through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, in case you don't know, is the first book of the New Testament. It is the first of our four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We are in Matthew chapter 12. Now, last week, if you were here, you may recall that we were in verses 1 through 14. Uh, Matthew 12, verses 1 through 14. It was something of a two-part uh look at the, Jesus and his engagement with the Pharisees and their response to him and uh, their, the, the pushback and the hostility and, and all of that. Um, we were looking at both parts, uh, an incident that took place um, probably out outside a, a farm and then another incident immediately following up as a sequel to that uh, in a local synagogue. I want to read, pick up in the, in, the, in the part two of where we were last week and then keep going. Okay, So for context's sake, I want to rewind just a little bit. Uh, start in verse 9, read on through verse 14 where we stopped last week, and then keep going, verses 15 to 21. 
Okay? So, not to confuse you, we're just reading verses 9 through 21. And then we're going to look at, a little bit more intensively, uh, verses 15 to 21. So, hear now the word of God. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Well, let's pray together for just a moment. Father, thank you for this time that we have uh, here in the midst of busy days and busy schedules, uh, that we could spend a little bit of time here at the beginning of the first day of this week um, in this way. Uh, we ask that you would take and, and use even the whole of the service, but also in particular this, this time in midst of this service, uh, to give us the ability to, to see better our own days, the days uh, this past week, and anticipating and living into, moving into uh, these days in this upcoming week. We need understanding. We need wisdom more than we know. More, more, more than we know. We need a clear view of, of who you are, Lord Jesus, and your purposes for us. Uh, we ask that you'd help us to understand what was going on there, what was being said of you, what, how you were responding to all of that, and then how in the world this ancient prophecy from the prophet Isaiah factors into all of that. Uh, we ask for wisdom. We ask for understanding, deep understanding. And in your name we pray these things. Amen. Strong figures. If you're familiar with, um, oh, I don't know, if you're uh, paying attention to contemporary events, if you are a student of history at all, you know this truism. Strong figures tend to bring about a strong reaction, right? A strong figure brings Strong reaction. So imagine this scenario. So a charismatic figure arrives on the scene. This figure is, is, he comes from outside the traditional power structures. He comes on the scene with this familiar yet revolutionary message. A message that speaks of uh, the putting down of an insurgency, the renewal and uh, restoration of a kingdom, an invitation to join and be a part of this movement, and then a claim of himself to actually be that king. Well, friends, that's exactly what you have with Jesus. That's exactly the dynamics in play. This strong figure coming into the, the, the 
flow of time and space and history. And the thing is that he's forcing a choice upon us. There is no neutral response. You can't drive in the median here. There is no neutral response to Jesus. It won't work. It simply will not work. We are given the option of either accepting what he says and submitting ourselves to him or rejecting what he says and then resisting him. Now the Pharisees took the second option, that of rejection and resistance. Uh, we, we, we know that. Uh, we saw, they, they saw Jesus as, as a threat, uh, a threat to their traditions, a threat to their authority, a threat to their influence, a threat to their wealth, a threat to their power. They saw Jesus as a threat. And so because of that, they then uh, stirred up a plot against him. We read about that just right there in verse 14 of chapter 12. We saw this a moment ago, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So here's the question. Do they know who they're conspiring against? Do they really know who they are conspiring against? Jesus' response to this conspiracy is rather telling. It is revealing. It is enlightening. It is encouraging. Do they know who they are conspiring against? Do we know who they are conspiring against? Matthew's uh, reflection on this is rather telling as well and encouraging, I would add, too. Matthew recognizes in what he sees and what he observes and what he takes in to be a fulfillment of ancient prophecy from Isaiah some 700 years before even these events that we're reading of here in Matthew 12 took place. Matthew recognizes something is wonderful, amazing is taking place. He recognizes that Jesus is in fact, the one we're reading of here in Matthew 12, Jesus is in fact this long-awaited, much-anticipated, chosen and beloved servant of God. Jesus is, in fact, the chosen and beloved servant of God. Ours, then, understand, given that, ours, then, is not to resist him. Ours is to turn to him. Ours is to turn to him, to look to him. After all, how is he described here? Looking at, in particular at Matthew's uh, narrative and then especially Isaiah's prophecy, we see these three things. It's in your outline there, these three things in terms of how Jesus is revealed unto us and even to those people that day. He is, first, the answer for our hatred. Secondly, He is the healing for the broken. And thirdly, He is the hope for the nations. We are in desperate need, all of us, all of us of those three things. The answer to our anger the answer to our anger and our hatred, the healing for the broken and the wounded, and the hope for the nations. Let's look at these three in turn. Why, in fact, ours is to turn to him. He is the answer for our hatred. That's the first thing. And please understand, what I'm about to say here is not some fanciful idea, an ethereal dream. Oh, can't we just get along? Can't we just love on one? This, this is, is connecting to real life. If I can use an image that no few of you would understand, this is boots-on-the-ground theology, reality, what Jesus 
is and who he is and what he has come to bring. Now, the familiar cycle, we know the familiar cycle of anger and hostility and fighting and conflict, right? You hurt me. You hurt me. I'm going to hurt you back. I'm going to hit you back harder and between your eyes. That's the way it works. That's the natural cycle of, re- of retaliation and escalation, right? We know this. We know how it's, it's, it's what's inbred in us. We just feel it. It's the natural response. It's kind of like Jimmy Malone, right? In The Untouchable, Sean Connery's character. As he speaks, I'm not going to do the Scottish bro, couldn't possibly pull it off, but, but Sean Connery, Jimmy Malone's character, as he's speaking to Elliot Ness, uh, Kevin Costner's character, and this is what he says. They pull a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. Well, that's the human way. That's the natural way. That's my way. That's your way of responding to anger and hostility, especially when you're on the receiving end of that. Well, Jesus, though this be the familiar cycle, breaks it. He breaks it. Look at what we see here. Jesus, aware of this, verse 15, aware of what? This, this is what? This is the conspiracy that Matthew has just told us about in the prior verse. Okay? Jesus, knowing that they're gunning for him, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. He withdrew from there. And then Matthew recognizes in this, partially at least, as a fulfillment of Isaiah's ancient, beautiful old words there in verse 19, skipping down, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Jesus withdraws. He withdraws. He does not attack. He withdraws. And in fact, he goes even further. He orders the recipients of his healing to not spread the word as to what has happened. And the context of that is because of all the misunderstanding and, and the, the flawed expectations of who this Messiah was to be and what it was he was come to do, the, the expectations at the popular level at the time was that he was to be a military, political king and savior. Jesus, knowing that, says, stop. Stop. So he withdraws, and he orders, he arrests, he disrupts the cycle. He blows it up. And that is a completely unnatural response to not justify what I've said and done. To not try and get the vengeance, get the pound of flesh that I feel like I deserve. And in fact, it's not just unnatural, it's supernatural. To put the interests of the king and the kingdom and the well-being of others ahead of me. It's not just unnatural, it's, it's supernatural. And so we see here Jesus coming as the answer for our hatred. Breaking that, that cycle. Miroslav Volf. Miroslav Volf, I realize that's not a name that, that many of us are familiar with. Um, there's a quote there in your quotes and notes. It's the first one. I want to read that to you in a second. But first tell you who he is. He's a, a, a Croatian writer, a Croatian writer um, who um, was very much a part of, I should say, he witnessed with his own eyes, uh, the terrible violence in the Balkans back in the 1990s. And and Wolf, in writing and pushing back against soft, fuzzy-headed thinking, says some very strong things. And I want to read to you this, this quote now. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. 
The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Okay. You're like, what, what? What does the gospel have to do with this? What does the gospel have to do with this? This is what the gospel has to do with this. That the pull, the pull upon our hearts to take vengeance is so strong that the only thing that can counterbalance that, the only thing that can kill that, the only thing that can arrest that is the gospel is the work of Christ, the presence of Christ in our lives. It's the only thing that can stop that cycle. That's what Wolf is saying here. Jesus comes. I mean, he, Jesus comes loving His enemies. That's what we see here in Matthew chapter 12. Friends, that's actually how He saves us. Chiefly demonstrated and, and of course, accomplished on the cross. Loving us, His enemies. That's how He saves us. That's the pattern. It's also how he now calls us to serve him. Loving our enemies. Entrusting ourselves and our circumstances and the wrong we feel like has been done to us to him. To him. Entrusting ourselves and envisioning ourselves in the perpetrator. In the one who has done us wrong. Envisioning ourselves in that person and then extending to that person the same mercy that has been poured out upon us. And trusting and envisioning. Now I realize, I realize what I just said is very complicated in terms of you know what, what all how all that plays out, and there's more to be said. I understand that, but please don't say less. Yes, there's more to be said. Yes, this is complicated. And yes, we could talk more about this. But please don't say less. Jesus comes as the answer for our hatred. He is the chosen, beloved servant. Ours is to turn to Him. Not resist Him. Second point, following up from that and um, tied to that, is not only is He the answer for our hatred, He is the healing for the broken. He is the healing for the broken. Now you see this in particular in the metaphors. Uh, as, as Matthew is quoting here from those uh, verses, uh, the prophecy from Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 is where Matthew is quoting here from. So picking up where we left off, uh, verses 15 through 17, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them. Healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Now, part of that fulfillment, skipping down, we saw it was verse 19. Now, skip down to verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Now, you need to understand something of what is going on here with this, these metaphors being spoken of here, used here, the, the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. The, the, the bruised reed. Now, understand that in that time, in those days, a reed... It's not just like the dry thing you put in the planter and you don't have to water it there in your living room. I mean, that's cool, that's fine. But these reeds 
were at those times were used as measures, right? Market, you got a uniform sense of a measurement, or a pen, a writing implement, or a flute. But those reeds are fragile, easily bent, broken, bruised. Okay? All right, that's the wick. Excuse me, that's the uh, reed, the, the bruised reed. The smoldering wick clearly is alluding to a candle, a lantern, or some something with a wick that is now just smoking. It's just it's it's out. It's it's been extinguished. There's nothing but smoke. It's useless, right? A wick is useless without flame. Now, how then does Jesus respond to? Can I put it this way? The broken and the useless. That's what he's get. What we're getting after here. What we're seeing here. The compassion. The compassion of this uh, this servant, this chosen beloved one. We see that unlike us, he sees past an agenda of ways of using people for for our own ends, his own ends. He sees past an agenda. Um, there's a sense in which one writer I was looking at this past week said, you know, it's hard to get our minds around because, you know, he's God in the flesh, and yet at the same time, because of his heart, because of how he feels towards the needs of his flock, there's a sense in which you can say Jesus can't help himself. He can't help when he sees the needs of these people. He can't help then but to extend himself and to heal them and to address their misery and their suffering, which despite the fact, in a sense, was counterproductive in a way to his agenda because the problem is in this, you see it here. The more he heals, the more the word spreads. And the more the word spreads, the more popular he gets, and the more popular he gets, the more angry the religious authorities are getting, and the more angry the religious authorities are getting, the more their back is getting up and the resistance is rising against him. There's a sense in which you could say his compassion is counterproductive, but he doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's healing. He's addressing the misery, the pain, the suffering of the broken. Why? Because he sees the value of persons. Made according, made in God's image, according to His likeness, therein with eternal worth, eternal value, worth the trouble, worth the concern, worth the effort, worth the attention. Jesus comes with healing for the broken, even those the world would discard. The broken and the useless, the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. Which is why from the very beginning, from the very earliest days of the church, his followers have stood out in this world, recognizing he came and therein we are sent forth into this world to bring healing for the broken. Giving of themselves from the earliest day to, to, to um, assist and, and uh, take care of those who are in need. Um, coming alongside, listening to cries of babies on the sides of the roads or in city dumps and adopting them from the beginning. Founding hospitals. Staying in the urban centers when the plagues would come. When everyone else was running out, the Christians would stay 
Not just to the endangerment of their health, the endangerment of their lives. Even as everyone else was fleeing, they would stay to care for the sick and the dying. It's completely consistent with who they, we, know our Lord to be. Healing. Jesus comes bringing healing for the broken. Now, here's one more thing I want to say regarding that. We are all, we are all the bruised reed and the smoldering wick, every one of us. The problem is, some of us are too proud to acknowledge it, or blind, or some combination thereof. We are all, every one of us here, and every man, woman, or child you will ever meet, is included in this description of being the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. And we need to know that of ourselves. Oh, we need to know that of ourselves. The Sermon on the Mount, chapter, Matthew chapters 5, 6, 7, begins in chapter 5, begins with what is oftentimes referred to as the Beatitudes, which is a description of the characteristics of those who would follow Jesus, Christians. It begins, it's a, it's a, a comprehensive, all-inclusive description. We don't get to pick and choose. The first one in the list, Matthew 5, 3, reads like this, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus in his compassion and mercy towards us at times will take pains to show us our spiritual poverty. Now what do you think the means are towards that end? Uh, last week, or a few weeks ago, I guess it was now, I was talking about LASIK and PRK and those procedures, you know, where you can recover your eyesight and all that sort of thing. Let me put it this way, as that is an analogy. Sometimes, in order to see, he has to cut. In order that we might be able to see, he has to cut. In order to rekindle flames, he might actually have to snuff it. In order to bring mending and healing, he might have to bruise and break. Now that's hard to hear, but vital to know that we would know ourselves to be poor in spirit. But also know this. Know this. The one who wounds is himself a wounded healer with the scars in the hands and upon his brow and in his side and in his feet. The one who wounds is a wounded healer. The one who bruises was bruised once for all for us. And he is still yet always for us. Even in the bruising. Even in the bruising. This Jesus that we're reading of here in Matthew 12, one of the reasons that Matthew is excited and so glad to quote here from Isaiah 42 is because indeed with Jesus comes the healing for the broken. Healing for the broken. This chosen beloved servant to whom we must turn. But let me push now to the third point because there's something else here as, as rich as the rest of it, if not more so. Not only has Jesus come as this 
answer to our hatred and the healing for the broken, but also the hope for the nations. The hope for the nations. Um, you see a plan unfolding here. Uh, it's, it's rather explicit in some places if you just think about what, what uh, Isaiah is saying. Um, or and even implicit, if you just read between the lines, it's pretty clear. So it's just soaked with there's a, there's a plan unfolding here. Let me read it to you again, verses 18 through 21. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now, there's a plan unfolding. Israel had a place in this plan, clearly so. But it was not just about Israel. It was not a plan unfolding for one nation. It was a plan unfolding through one nation for all nations. Okay? That's clear as can be all through the Bible. Your table of contents to the maps, everything included, presses on this reality. In Matthew's Gospel alone, if you start with the first chapter with the genealogy, this is very apparent. It's, this plan is unfolding through one nation for all nations. I'm so glad, by the way, the ladies are doing this study. From garden to glory, it's exactly the kind of thing that you ladies are going to be delving into. Men, we should maybe do the same thing. Um, that's the plan that's unfolding here, from starting with the first chapter in genealogy all the way to the last chapter of Matthew with the Great Commission. This plan that, that the Lord has in, in mind from first to last, from beginning to end, a plan unfolding, or I can put it this way, a vision that's coming, a goal, an end, a purpose, a horizon, a horizon that he has in mind. Of, of, of a judgment, and that's spoken of here, of a judgment that is to come. That is to say that all will have to answer in the end for their rejection of the living God and His Son. All will have to answer for that. It's a message of judgment being spoken of here, but also justice, which is a little different. A little different, meaning that all will get their due. Or if I can... as a as, a sibling to that is that all that will be all that is wrong will be made right. All that is wrong will be made right. A renewal, a restoration, a redemption that is to come. That's the vision that's coming. Jesus comes as the hope for the nations. The hope for the nations. There's a definite article I just used there twice. The hope for the nations, not a hope. That's a vital distinction that must be made. Jesus does not come as a hope for the nations. He comes as the hope for the nations. Now, I recognize how that may strike some of you here this morning. That you might feel something of a, of a hive coming out, a little bit of an allergic reaction to that, just a little bit of a, I'm not sure I, I, I'm, I'm there with you kind of feel. You're speaking an exclusive language there. That's offensive. 
don't you know that all paths lead to God? Don't you know that all religions are true? All ways are right. Okay, friend, if that's how you're responding, then you are hearing me right. Okay, and I would just ask that you hear me for just a few more minutes. Just hear me for a few more minutes. The position you just described of all faiths being equally valid, of all religions, all worldviews, all philosophies being equally true and fine is actually a religion, philosophy, and worldview itself. And it is just as exclusive as the one you're pushing against. Hear me. Hang with me here. You'd imagine going into a, a bookstore or a library, and you go into the religion section, and there you see all these books, and you look on the spines of those books, and you see a, a, a breadth of, of choices, and some are about Christianity, and some are about Judaism, and some are about Islam, and some are about Buddhism, and some are about Hinduism, and some are about just all just name it, okay? And then all this there, and also by the way, pluralism is listed there. You see the spines, you see the titles, you pull one off at a time, and you look at the contents. And you realize, as you begin to examine them one at a time, that they're each their own thing. And each has fundamentally different ways of answering some pretty significant questions, like purpose and meaning, the nature of God or divinity at all. Our problem, our deepest problems as human beings. We know we've got one. What is it? What, what's its cause? What's the solution? Each one of those books, as you crack them open, look into the contents, answers those questions in fundamental different ways. And what you begin to realize is the one that you can rule out from the start is the one that says they're all the same. Do you understand? The one that you can just put back on the shelf and you don't need to spend any time with it is the one that says pluralism. Because it immediately has just defeated itself. Okay, let me come in a different way. Every worldview, every philosophy, every religion, every faith has this in common. They all do. Every single one of them. Exclusivity. They all think... And every, all the adherents believe that they are right. That's, what, that's all what exclusiveness means. I'm right. You're not. You say, I'm, you're right, and I'm not. That's just exclusiveness. They all have that in common. All the books. Every one of the books. They all have that in common. But there's one that stands out. Distinct. Otherworldly. Because it, it just it doesn't it doesn't equate at all with all the other ones. Christianity speaks of grace. Christianity speaks of standing and security and hope and assurance, and that, that can be had not through our works, our accomplishments, our achievements, but through another's on our behalf. And in that message, it stands completely apart from all the other ones. Jesus comes 
as the hope, the hope for the nations. He stands alone as the hope for the nations. I, oh, that we would not resist him, but rather turn to him. Now, I just want to end with this last thing, and that is, what in the world does that mean? That is to say, turn to him. That can sound like very spiritual talk. What does it mean to turn to him? It needs to simply this. It's a whole lot less complicated than we make it out to be. Just to simply reckon with who he is. Reckon with who he is, what he has said, what he has done. It's not a blind leap, but a thoughtful step based on what we know of him. It's not a blind leap. It's a thoughtful step. Okay, look. It's late spring, moving into the summer, season of weddings. I don't doubt that no few of us will be attending no few of these grand affairs. Okay, fine. How does, where does a wedding start? The wedding starts with engagement. Right. Where does an engagement start? With a proposal. Ah. Think with me. When that man gets down upon his knee, whether literally or metaphorically, and ask that great question of that lady, does he actually know everything there is to know about her? No. Sometimes that's why he's asking. <laughs> Not in my case. Not in my case. Just to clear that up. Um, pushing on. When that lady hears that question, and she says, yes, does she know everything there is to know about that man? Lord, no. That's, again, partially why she says yes, right? That's probably true to the case in my situation as well. Um, no, of course not. They're taking a, a, a thoughtful step, right? It's, it's based on what they know, not exhaustive knowledge. Based on what they know, based on their experience, Based on the evidence, based on testimony, it's a thoughtful step. Not a blind leap. It's a thoughtful step. It's much the same with what we're talking about here in terms of a step of faith, of trusting in, of turning to Jesus, this chosen, beloved servant of God, of putting faith and hope and trust in, in him. It's, it's not a blind leap. It's, it's, not, it's, it's like in a courtroom setting, what, what the judge, what he says to the jury, you're looking for something that's beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, my friends, we have something here that's beyond reasonable doubt. Who he is and why he's come. And come for us. May we turn to him. Can I pray? Lord, we ask that you'd help us to hear Matthew's words here. Ask that you would... Uh, and his observations that, of what he witnessed and what he came to reckon and grapple with and the conclusions that he came to and recognizing, oh, oh, this is him. The fulfillment of the ancient, ancient words. This is him. Help us hear that. Whatever the preconceptions are, whatever the assumptions are, whatever the biases are, that we are bringing to this table here this morning, we ask that you'd help us to be honest about our preconceptions, honest about our assumptions and biases, and then willing to examine, re-examine, and willing to hear. This is a message we need to hear. Our lives, our world, our families, 
Our relationships, our workplaces are filled with, we are filled with anger and brokenness and hopelessness. And you, Jesus, as the chosen, beloved servant, have come to address those things. This, this message we know is something that fits and it resonates, but oh, not because it's clever, but because it's of you. And we ask that you would help us here and take it to heart. In your name we pray. Amen.